I'm going to um, split this podcast into two parts. <laughs> Today I'm going to talk about Megillat Esther from the perspective of Vashti. And next week I'm going to talk about the character of Esther. So the two have to be listened to together to appreciate what I'm trying to get at. That is, I, I am using the two characters of Vashti and Esther as literary foil characters, but I, I don't have enough time uh, to do them together justice. So today I will talk about Vashti and next Sunday I'll talk about uh, Esther. Needless to say, <laughs> I am not reading this in an orthodox way in the sense that I was raised in the Hasmonean <laughs> Grammar School for Boys <laughs> to read it, but it comes from a reading against the grain. Every year I start with the story, and today I will end with that similar story uh, because we live in a post-Holocaust world. And Julia Stryker, the famous Nazi propagandist, after Kristallnacht writes, uh, ah, this is our Purim fest. This is how we celebrate Purim in a, in a very bizarre and horrific manner. And then in 1946, it was actually in October when the British took the 10 Nazis together and, and strung them up, all in the space of an hour and a quarter, mind you, on a gallows. And the gallow master for the British Army's name was Wood, Alha Eights, the 10 uh, children of Haman. And as he's going up to the, the steps to uh, being hanged, Stryker says, Heil Hitler. And then he says again, ah, Purim Fest, they will celebrate this. Well, we didn't develop a new Purim in October of 1947. We incorporated that into the litany of Haman's going down all the way to our generation, to be quite honest, with Julius Streicher, Yemach Shemo. Now, of all the Bible books that test the limits of the canon, and why Chazal in the first century BCE decided to include the book of Esther in the holy canon, uh, Esther is the most anomalous. Uh, the Frumis in the Dead Sea Scroll sect down there, who felt that the Orthodox in Jerusalem were not Orthodox enough, they would not include it. They did not include it. There's no scrap of the book of Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They would look askance, as David Alter says, at it not merely because it never mentions the name of God. There's no mention of the name of God, forcing the rabbis to say, that when it says Melech HaChashverosh, it refers to the kingly God. And when it just says La Melech, uh, it refers to the Melech Malchei Hamlochim. That's a Medrash rubber. But its narrative is fundamentally secular. Um, the lit likely date of the book's composition is somewhere in the 5th century. It can't be later than that because of Cyrus. And it was not written long after the return to Zion that Cyrus authorized uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the legend is that Cyrus's son, Achashverosh, or Xerxes, I don't know how you say that in Greek, it's a X, uh, Xerxes, tried to undo it. And that's why when he has the party, he shows the riches and he dresses in the big day kahuna. 
Vatilbash Vayekar Tifarto, that refers midrashically to the big day corner. It has been described as a farce, the book, burlesque, satire, fairy tale, a carnivalesque narrative, and quite funny, with sly sexual comedy playing a significant role. Very nice. So Azoi Zocht Robert Alter. Now, the Book of Esther uh, is both a narrative of historical events and a study of human dynamics. And I want to look at that human dynamics to start off with the character of Vashti, uh, because really she's the forgotten character. The king and his first wife look like comic characters in a Shakespearean comedy. Silly, selfish, ruled by their instincts, incapable of serious thought, but there's more to the story than that. The feast and the flattery with which the story begins shows Achashverosh at his best and his worst. He thinks that all a king has to do is to strut. Remind you of a recent president? Issue commands and expect instant obedience. The orders he gives his wife, Vashti, is therefore a ploy to show the noble princes of his Medinas who's in charge. So we can expect how upset he is when Vashti, and we'll get into that medrash, whose point of view we will consider in detail, refuses to obey, exposing his weakness before the entire aristocracy and even before the commoners. So if Avchashverosh is a fictional character, we can surely argue that Vashti is a fraud. She is popularly thought both in Midrash and in, in, in Beis Yaakov, when my granddaughters come home with Vashti, and you ask my granddaughters, what do they teach you in Beis Yaakov? She's a silly woman who flouts her husband's wishes and is banished from the narrative. After the first chapter, she never appears in the story again. Most people view Vashti then as nothing more than the opening act of the story to set the scene for the later events. This interpretation that she's the foil character for the introduction of Queen Esther ignores the inherent fascination of me for Vashti, who is far from uninteresting in her own right, as the Medrash recognizes. I like powerful and dark women for some reason. She bears a name that in old Persian probably means excellent. Possibly the original Vashti was an Edomite goddess, though those nationalists who insist that every biblical name is derived from Hebrew find some connection with the word Vashti Shata to drink, since it was the royal drinking that provoked her undoing. So is it that Vashti of the Megillah is a woman of dignity and integrity who refuses to dance naked, as we'll know before the Medrash, before a group of degenerate, the drunken and the debauched. When the king says dance, according to tradition, he means wearing nothing but the crown. Though cavorting without clothes is probably far from the uncommon in those days, according to Persian records. And so she retorts, I refuse, and we will come back to that name, Vatamaein. 
And now she disappears from the story after she refuses and from history. The Vashti of the Medrash, as we now go into the Medrash, has lineage. She has Yichas as the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar and the daughter of Sheshbazar. The truth is that her refusal to obey her husband is neither out of feminism or out of modesty. It is out of vanity. The Chazal posit that she has some kind of rash and fears that the audience will think her ugly. So let's go into the Vashti of Midrash by first starting with the Pshat. And we're looking at chapter one, just these few verses. So it's not just for nobles, it's for commoners as well, which goes along with his humiliation. He had established the authority of his party, and now he has on the Washington Mall a huge inauguration. And then he mentions seven princes, and they're, they're going to be coming back because he's going to be asking them what to do with this Vashti. What, do you, what would you do in your realm if the queen humiliated you? And they will give him a response, banish her, and Medrash says, kill her. And we don't know how he responded, except very late on in the book of Esther, the Midrash says, uh, when he realizes that she was right to have warned him about the princes, that they're just going to try and seduce her and kill him if she shows up naked, he realizes when Homon falls on her bed that she was right after all because he suspected Homon of jump, jumping on top of her. And so the Medrash says he actually had them hanged as well. Very interesting twist in this king, this emperor, who felt betrayed by the advice of these princes. By the way, Hitler had most of his generals uh, killed, most of the people who were closest to him killed, and the same with Stalin. This word kadas, I'm sure you know, is the proper Persian bureaucracy. Kadat doesn't mean religion. Okay. And we're going to come back to that. She is also doing the same thing for women, Beit Mamalchut, in his palace. Medrash knows where was it and what was going on. They weren't drinking, but there was licentious play going on. Okay. Now, by Yomashvi Katov Leib HaMelech, Bayayin, he is cold stone drunk. To those seven princes he goes, the seven eunuchs, And we're going to go into the Medrash. What does that mean to come with Kete Malchut? Should she wear the crown? Well, obviously she's the queen. So the, the, the Medrash will say, well, only with the Kete Malchut meaning stark naked. It doesn't say that in the Pshat, though. To show them her beauty. Remember, this is occurring in Persia. So there are three main 
international countries, Persia, that's Paras, Modai, that's Mede, and Vashti came from Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, that was Chaldean. So he's trying to show off her Chaldean beauty, Kitovas Mara here. And then the famous word Vatamaen Hamalka Vashti. Where do we see that word with the Shalsheles? Vatamaen by Yosef Hatzadik when he is being seduced by Asius Potiphar, connecting the authors, connecting the book of Esther and Persia with Joseph being the feminine Esther in Mitzrayim, from rags to riches. Okay, so as we dive into the Midrash, what is going on in the refusal of the queen? What is the motive for it? And the Midrash gives us three different three different reasons. The first one is Vatamaina Malka, Omrolo, she sends a message back with the eunuchs, number one. Imro in Osi Na'er, hey, nosen What are you doing, you stupid king? If they see me naked, there'll be a coup, and they're all gonna ravish me. The Imro in Osi Ba'ura at mitganat bi, and if they perceive me to be ugly, you will be disgraced by me. So you have nothing to gain, much to lose by summoning before your guests in this manner. Ramazatu velo nirma. She hinted, but he was drunk and he didn't get it. So then what happened? Akatsatu velo nekat. She stung him with her words and he didn't feel the sting. She made it clearer and he still didn't get it. So now she sent a second message in Midrash Rabbah, Parsha 3. Komes istabalati shall bait abba hayisa. Now she gets nasty and she brings up her sefer yuchsin. I come from Yichas. I am Bat Malka Bat Melech, Nebuchadnezzar's granddad, and Belshazzar's my father. And you? Who are you? Komeim Istabalati, you are the head of the horse stables in Belshazzar's house. And you are accustomed to having unclothed zonot. <laughs> you used to have hookers coming to the stable and, be, and jump and frolic in the hay with them. And now you became a king, you still haven't changed. That was a bigger sting, number two. Romazda below Nirmaz. She hinted, and he still didn't get the hint. Akatsatu below Nekats. So he didn't feel the sting. So she had to make her message even clearer. And then she sent him an even a stronger message. Afilu andisikus shall bait abba. Even the litigants who were found guilty of the capital crime in my father's house, they weren't sentenced unclothed. They were given the dignity in the Chaldean dynasty of dying with their clothes on. Now, 
It says by Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in Daniel 3.21, then these men were bound in their cloaks and their pants. So she claimed that Nebuchadnezzar's treatment of those condemned to die with greater respect than Ahasuerus, who wished his own subject to be a wife to be subject to humiliation and to be appear unclothed. Now, what is the meaning of the Sarbalahayan? Rav Yudin says in their cloaks and Rav Huna says in their turbans. Now, this brings us to our Midrash. And that is as follows. When Vashti refused to come, the rabbi suggested that actually it wasn't because of immodesty. The Gemara in Megillah says, let us see. She was a lewd woman, as it says. Both of them, both Achashverosh and Vashti, intended to act immorally in their parties. What is the reason she did not come when Achashverosh ordered her to appear naked? And now we are given something very grotesque. And I think I would like to uh, consider the uh, title of today's podcast, Vashti's Tale, <laughs> T-A-I-L and T-A-L-E. If she was really such a depraved creature, then why would she have declined an opportunity for this exhibitionism? The rabbis add supplementary details to the biblical narrative. Yes, for sure she was willing to display her charms before the king's drinking partners. And it was the Abishter that interfered because like a good Shakespearean character, the chorus gives us the line that the omniscient narrator is controlling the events of the characters from behind the scenes. So too Lahavdil, the almighty one whose name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther is controlling the puppets. And so she was willing to go naked. Yeah, no problem. Why? Because she was just also a let's just like a husband. So what did God do? He inflicted on her a humiliating physical deformity. And what is it? Well, there's, there's the two, there's a machloikas, as you can see from the Gemara. Oh, she couldn't come naked. She was sprouting a skin, a dermatological skin condition, looking very much like psoriasis, which would be really putting off people, even if they're drunk. However, there was a Bricer, an anonymous Bricer, that said that the angel Gavriel came, the Osala Zanav, and produced for her a tail. She developed a tail. Now, the last possibility was widely understood as a euphemism for a miraculous transformation to a male anatomy. Now, this interpretation was too risque for some reader, readers. And so the offending sentence had to be censored out of some editions of the Gomorrah. And it's not in our edition of the Gomorrah. But in Louis Ginsburg's compendium of Midrashic law, The Legends of the Jews, the passage does appear in footnotes, but in Latin. 
it was too risky at the time of Louis Ginsburg to put it in English. So in its own way, the Midrashic tradition tries to liberate Vashti, portraying her as a wily politician, not just as a passive royal ornament. And as the scion of a once mighty royal dynasty, she would flaunt her pedigree in Ahasuerus's face. She was also adept at subtle political maneuvering. The fact that she held a separate feast for the ladies of the imperial nobility rather than participating in general festivities was a wise strategic move. In case a coup should be attempted during Ahasuerus' celebration, she would have under her control a prestigious group of hostages to use as a bargaining card. The way uh, we use human shields as practiced by Saddam Hussein is not a recent innovation in that region of the world. Now, I want to point out to you a subtle difference between two groups of Chazal. And that is Vashti is seen by Chazal in the Gemara, the Babylonian account of Vashti. And I want to show you this fault line that goes between Chazal as their approach to Vashti as we come to a more modern interpretation. So the Babylonian rabbis had a negative, extremely negative view of Vashti. She's a wicked Jew hater. She's wanton in the commentary to verse nine. She had a banquet for women in the royal palace of the king meant for men, not in the natural venue like the harem. They learned from this that Vashti had a licentious intent when she organized her banquet, just like Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, it was also the seventh day of the week, Shabbos Kodesh. When the Israelites eat and drink on the Shabbos, they utter words of Torah. But when the non-Jewish peoples eat and drink on the Sabbath, they begin with indecent talk. And so it was with the banquet of Ahasuerus, because some said they had a machloikas between who were the most beautiful, Paras, Madai, or Chaldea? So the Median women, some said the Median women are the fairest. Others claimed the Persian women are the fairest. Ahasuerus said, excuse me, the vessel that I use, meaning my wife, is neither from Mede nor from Persia, but Babylonian Chaldean. That's where I met my wife. Do you want to see her? According to Chazal. And they said, yes, but only if she's naked. So this is going on in Chazal, in the Gomorrah and Megillah's view of Vashti. Okay. And it says, and she shall come, Bekesa Malchus. So the Gomorrah says, only Kesa Malchus, otherwise stark naked. So the Chazal in Babylonian uh, view of Vashti, remember Babylonian is very near Persia and they're influenced by the Persian cult. They depict Vashti as a wanton adulteress, leading us to ask why, if this was the case, did she have refused to appear? So the rabbis maintain she did want to appear. Her plans were upset because of the leprosy or the tail. Okay. And the punishment was Mida Keneged Mida. 
as she did to Jewish women on Shabbos, meaning she forced Jewish women to strip them naked in order to perform work on the Sabbath, she was punished by being commanded to appear naked. That's the Gemara in Megillah. So this collection of Agadatas presents Vashti in a very negative light. The adverse attitude of the rabbis in Bovel to Vashti might possibly have resulted that Vashti was Babylonian, Chaldean. And for the rabbis, she represented local Babylonian women who were promiscuous and Jew haters. And it could be that Chazal had a, an ulterior motive for, for writing this. Now let's move on the other side of the fault line and to look at the view of Vashti from the Palestinian rabbis in Midrash Rabbah. In contrast to the negative depiction of Vashti in the Bovel, the counterparts in Eretz Israel portrayed her in a positive manner. Vashti was a skion of a royal dynasty, deported herself with proper honor and nobility. When Ahasuerus sent his eunuchs to bring Vashti, she sends three times, as we learned in uh, the Medrash, and demonstrating her adept way of controlling her husband, and at the end, actually denigrating, denigrating him. So the reader then sees the portrayal of Ahasuerus in contrast to Vashti as a ruler who acts rashly, does not think one st single step ahead, comes from a commoner class. He was just in charge of the horses in the stable. And his wife sends Ahasuerus bouncing off his back like a thick-skulled king. And even in his palace, his behavior is inappropriate. Now, despite this positive depiction of Vashti in the Palestinian Midrashim, they had to find a flaw in her for which she is punished by God and deposed because of this, her role as a character and a foil character to Esther, which I'll discuss next week. So they assert that Ahasuerus wanted actually to rebuild the temple, but Vashti stopped him. Vashti mm. stopped him. She told him, you wish to rebuild what my forefather Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And so therefore, According to the Palestinian sources, very close to the Khurban bias, uh, Rishon, she was punished by the loss of her crown. For the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, Vashti apparently represented the Babylonian rule that laid waste to the temple. And her replacement by Esther symbolized the reversal that occurs in the book of Esther, in the hope that the ravages of the temple would receive their punishment and the people of Israel would return to its former glory. Now, let's go to a more modern feminist perspective to end up. And this is setting up the background for next week's review of Esther. And although Vashti and Esther never meet, the relationship between them is integral to understanding the events of the book of Esther. Vashti disappears by the end of the first chapter, but she casts a long shadow over the rest of the book. As we encounter Vashti in the first chapter, 
we learn the following about her. She's beautiful, headstrong. She throws a good party. She refuses to have her appearance before the king, regulated solely by his desire. And for this last offense, she pays dearly, losing her crown and, according to the Midrash, losing her life. At the close of that first chapter, it's clear that a woman in Ahasuerus's court would do well to be dutiful and come before the king as he commands. And the essentiality of female obedience is confirmed by the final verse of the chapter in which the dat, the missive, is sent to everybody, all of Ahasuerus's subjects reminding the commoners that in no uncertain terms, every man should rule in his household. Now, I am indebted to Wendy Amsalem, the feminist writer who writes very sensitively about this. And from her, I read the following. Esther is presented at first as the perfect foil to Vashti. Whereas Vashti was willful and independent, Esther is passive and submissive. The reflexive use of the Hebrew word lakach is a constant light vault applied to her. She is lakach. She vatilokach. She's taken in by Mordechai as a foster daughter. Vatilokach. She's taken to the king's harem. She's taken before the king. She doesn't reveal her identity because Mordechai had commanded her not to tell. She requests nothing at the harem, accepting whatever Haggai, the king's eunuch, chooses to give her. Myrrh, frankincense, dip her in this, dip her there. She just complies. And even after she's crowned queen, we are told that Esther continues to obey the commands of Mordechai as she has done under his care. It is no surprise that Ahasuerus loves Esther. She is the model of docility, an exact antidote to the Baal Yuchsen, the granddaughter of, of, of kings and emperors, Vashti. So Esther understands her role as Ahasuerus's queen. When Mordechai commands her to appear before the king and intercede on behalf of the Jew, Esther responds that everybody knows that those who appear before the king unbidden are condemned to die. She has learned from her predecessor's fate that the queen's job is to come when called. Mordechai insists to Esther that it is her responsibility to plead for her nation. Now, this is the moment of crisis for Esther. And I will come back to this next week when we talk about Vatilbash Esther Malchus. She is caught between the conflicting obedience to her foster father and husband. This is the crisis point. In addition, to come before the king unsummoned is an abnegation of her role as Vashti's replacement. She was chosen to be queen because she represented the antithesis of Vashti's persona. Esther's position, her identity, and her life are tied to her obedience to the king. And so in this moment of fate, Esther looks into the mirror and discovers that she doesn't look, look quite so different from Vashti after all. Amazing insight. She's looking into the mirror and sees in the mirror her mirror image, the dark side of Esther Vashti. She takes now 
is the turning point of the whole story from the perspective of the woman. She takes matters into her own hands, stands up to sources of authority, assumes control of Mordechai's plan, tweaking it and changing it and amending it to see fit. And like Vashti, she appears before the king only when she decides that the time is right. In this case, after three days of fasting. And instead of following Mordechai's suggestion and simply making her petition, she will throw a series of parties like Vashti did. In order to succeed, Esther realizes she must take on aspects of the repudiated former queen. As you can hear, I'm very drawn to the dark side of Esther. This is a union moment of integration and individuation. She only becomes the true Esther when she now incorporates that dark image. She individuates and takes the energy of that darkness. As Esther marshals her strength to save her nation, she must revisit the experiences of her shunned predecessor and learn from them. She, however, is more calculated, more subtle. We might say more divinely inspired if we're from, and ultimately more successful than Vashti. Yet in order to triumph, she must confront the image of Vashti and incorporate or maybe discover the attributes of Vashti in herself. Let's go back and end with that tale. <laughs> now the tale becomes interesting. As we say, God interfered. Yes, he interfered. And what happened? He did something. The Brysa says the angel Gabriel came and fashioned her a zanav, a tail. Now, what is a tail? And who has a tail? And what does the tail remind us of? Well, next week we're going to go into the deep meaning of the word Vatilbash Malchus. Vatilbash Esther Malchus. And Esther isn't Esther. And the king isn't Ahasuerus. Here we're talking about divine archetypes, both within upstairs and within ourselves. But Tilbash Esther Malchus, that part of Malchus, which is that has no light of its own, that part of us has a dark side. The positive side of Malchus is Esther and the dark side of Malchus is Vashti. So what is this referring to, this Zanav? Why on earth would she develop a tale? And your grandchildren will come and show you from Beis Yaakov a picture of Vashti with a tail. I would like to suggest this goes back to the very first tale in the Bible, T-A-L-E and T-A-I-L. Vashti's tale is all about the serpentine tail of the Garden of Eden. So Vashti is a reincarnation of Chava. She is Malchus. And Chava is seduced by, impregnated by this serpentine, dark image of herself. She incorporates and then represents to Adam this dark side of humanity that gives it both knowledge and the Yetzirahara. Mm -hmm. And so Atilbash Esther Malchus parallels here 
that Gavriel fashioned her a tail. Vashti now cannot appear before the king. Esther cannot appear until she's incorporated what Vashti was given. She, was, she needed to incorporate that dark side, that serpentine piece of cunning immodesty, everything that Vashti represents, but now integrate it into her being the heroine of this story. Thank you, everybody. See you next week for part two. <laughs>